When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Physically distant, but never closer. It is the Grit Iron Podcast. He is the head coach, Jay Norvell, politely laughing at that joke, which I've told every time. <laughs> the Hall of Famer, Mike Edwards, is with us. And Eric Scott, the wide receivers coach, joins us for this edition of the Grit Iron Podcast. Uh, happy podcast, everybody. Happy to be doing this again. And just before we started here, what, I feel like a fly on the wall. There was actual like staff communication happening. <laughs> coach we're Norvell, so, you're, do, you're doing a cool we're thing. So, we're social distancing, so we're in the same building, but we're just down the hall. We're just we're just uh, trying to utilize our new Zoom skills here. So, but you are uh, doing a cool cool clinic as we tape this, and uh, you're getting some some things together. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's actually been fun because uh, the last few weeks. We, we've had a lot of meetings, but we really haven't been talking football, to be honest with you. We've been talking about all the other things that are going on in the world. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing uh, uh, air raid clinic. Some of our other coaches are doing it. I don't know if you do, are you doing it? E? There's some of our other coaches. No, no, Timmy, Timmy's going to do it. Okay. And uh, I know Matt's doing it. And Timmy, I think coach best is doing it. Billy best. Um, but our guys have a lot of clinics, you know, no, uh, Eric's done several this off season and, but this is a fun one. It's, it's, uh, it's the national air clinic and, uh, Leach is, uh, Matt, 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 I always call, uh, uh Mike Leach, uncle Mike gets uncle Mike for Matt and, uh, um, but how mommy and a lot of, a lot of coaches that have, you know, affiliation with the air raid and I have never done this one before but I'm looking forward to it speaking uh I think uh Billy Best is speaking this afternoon and uh, and then uh, Timmy's gonna speak and then Matt speaks Friday I think and then Saturday uh me me Hal and Leach are talking so that'll be kind of cool and uh it's funny because I'm going back to 
a lot of stuff, you know. Um, I'm just I put some Al Davis stuff on there from when I was with the Raiders. Um, I, I put some stuff from Nebraska on there and and OU and uh, Indianapolis Colts. And you know, my my it's kind of like a, a I'm kind of giving tribute to the people that really affected me. Hayden Fry. Um, two great NFL coaches, Tom Moore and Howard Mudd, who was with me with the Colts, and um, and uh, you know Bill Callahan, who was with the Raiders, uh, Tressman, who was with the Raiders, Al Davis, who was obviously with the Raiders, and um, just hit on a couple things that you know that we stress here, and uh, you know the the title is building building a program. Uh, with with the air raid and the different things that have influenced me. But, you know, just reflecting on that, before we get to E, though, just reflecting on that, there's just so many people that have influenced me. And, um, um, you know, I was in the NFL for six years, and, you know, the biggest thing I got out of that was being around the very best people in the world that do football and um, – you know, what, 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 what being a professional means, you know, being a professional. And I learned this in the NFL, being a professional means doing your very best regardless of the circumstances. And that's what they do at that level. I mean, it's so competitive that you got to bring your best every day, whether your records, you know, three and 13, or, you know, if you, if you've got a five game losing streak, you still are professional. You're expected to do your very best and people get evaluated on that. So, uh, you know, it's uh, amazing, amazing people. You know, one of the other things that, um, you know, I, I, I was reviewing Al Davis, some Al Davis's things. And one of the things I loved about coach Davis, I call him coach is, is that, you know, he had two things that he really believed in uh, as far as football is concerned. He loved the vertical passing game. He loved throwing the ball deep. Regardless of the down, he wanted the opponents to feel like this team would go downtown on you. Um, the other thing he, he loved as a defensive part of the game is that he wanted a defense that in, in somewhere in the first 10 plays of the game, he wanted that quarterback to get hit and he wanted him to go down and go down hard. And uh, I actually reminded coach Ward of that today um, that we want to have that same thing. And so, um, and, and I just loved Al Davis's personnel, you know, 50 plus years in the NFL, he had a real idea what he wanted from each position. You know, when I was two years with the Raiders, we had the biggest offensive line in the world. I mean, we had guys, we were, we were three twenty, three, three thirty at the guards and at the tackles, you know, we had Lincoln Kennedy. He was like three sixty, about six, eight, three. He was shooting, you know, ginormous. And, um, and speed, believed in speed, you know, having a receiver that could run by people. And just, uh, I've just had a lot of fun, you know, uh, after the last uh, three months of COVID and another month of, uh, 
social unrest, it's been fun to do some football. So get back at it. Coach Scott, we were hearing from from Coach Norvell there about who his influences and mentors were in coaching. Who were some of yours? Uh, well, I would say first would probably be my high school coach. Um, I mean, probably Shout one of the Crenshaw meanest. High. Yeah, probably one of the meanest men I've ever met in my <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he was he was real good in the area of discipline. I mean, you know, you know I mean, we weren't taught a whole lot about playing football, but, I mean, we were tougher than nails. So, I mean, it was just, you know, back in the days when you can get a concussion and still play, you know, he would always tell us just rub a little dirt on it. <laughs> so, you know, that would be first of all. I mean, secondly – you know, just my time uh, at UCLA and spent with uh, – it was the first time I got a chance to spend time with uh, Coach Norvell. You know, I learned a lot because I was coming from uh, – at that time I was uh, – I guess the position wasn't really invented at the time, but I would be – I would have been the recruiting in-house recruiting coordinator, and I got a chance to spend a lot of time, you know, hanging around the offense and stuff. And then when Coach Norvell came on – I was actually, uh, you know, thankful and in a good position where I was hired, you know, to be his receiver coach. And, you know, I mean, just knowing how hard that can be coming from, you know, your boss who is also a receiver coach. And at that time, the head coach was a receiver coach as well. So I was getting it from all angles. So uh, influence-wise, I mean, definitely uh, Coach Norvell. And uh, Coach Robert Garrett would be uh, two guys that I would definitely put on a pedestal and say that I still, you know, even with Jay, I still learn things from him just uh, watching him move around the office and, you know, talk uh, football. John, you know, I think one of the things that's so interesting about Coach Scott is, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, Hayden Fry was my coach, and he said, you know, if you want the players to win, you have to surround them with winners. And and Coach Scott's been a winner everywhere he's ever worked and coached, you know, being a head coach in high school. And But Coach Scott has got one of the most interesting backgrounds of anybody I've ever been around. And, uh, you know, uh, he, 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 you know, he went to Northwestern and he – as a player and then he finished up uh, uh, at UCLA. Um, but Coach Scott, can you just talk about, you know, how you got started in coaching and working in the youth leagues and, and, and uh, you know, your relationship with Snoop and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I would um, – yeah, definitely wasn't something that was uh, – on my radar, you know, I mean, even playing football, you know, I wasn't, uh, I played football because I was made to play football. You know, I mean, just growing up in LA, you know, in my family, I had, uh, I grew up with five boys. My mother had five boys. Uh, my father died when I was a young kid. I was the youngest. So a couple of my older brothers played football, but they didn't uh, finish. So, um, L.A. is a very, I guess at the time, uh, in the 90s, you know, it was 
high gang infested area. So, I mean, you really couldn't escape it. So, I mean, you, you, you were, if you weren't automatically, uh, I mean, I guess I would have been automatically patrolled because of my uh, brothers. You know, all my brothers were gang members and I just automatically was just put into that area. And I got in trouble one day and uh, I had to go to court. And, um, you know, the judge, I had good grades. So the judge, you know, pulled us in the chambers and said that, you know, told me I either needed to join the, um, the, uh, you know, become like school president or something like that, do something at the school or do a sport. So, you know, I promised him that I would do a sport and uh, football was the one that I chose. So, um, I, you know, playing a little bit and uh, the grades, you know, my I, I've always had good grades. I've always been smart in that area and just always did the right things when it came to grades, but the influences outside and around just, you know, weren't very conducive to uh, how I grew up. You know, it was just, it was, it was off. It was bad, you know, but we adjusted. As far as coaching is concerned, you know, after playing college football and still not really being focused during that whole time, going to college and going through it, you know, cause when you grow up, you just kind of in survival mode. I was always taught to be in survival mode, so I never got a chance to really enjoy the fruits of what I was actually doing growing up. You know, you would think that you would be celebrated for having good grades. I've always had like straight A's, but I never celebrated it. I never looked at it as a big deal. You know, even in college having a high GPA, I never celebrated it. You know, I was, probably 85% invested in playing football. I was more interested in just hurrying up and getting out of college because my mother just wanted me to go to college. And it just wasn't the thing that was the uh, top of my mind. I just, I, it wasn't a dream of mine to go to college. You know, the dream was always survival, survival, you know, live, live to see another day. That was always the dream. And I just couldn't imagine at that time, living past 26, 27 years old, you know, considering the fact that two of my brothers had already been murdered at that time, and it was kind of just commonplace in L.A. that nobody made it past, you know, 25, 26 years old. So I never could see a future beyond that. It wasn't until when I was coaching at, I mean, when I was playing at UCLA, I actually started watching the coaches coach, listening to what they're saying. and how it was done, and it was like chess. So, you know, the reaction, being, being watching the defense have to react, you know, offense, and I was more, I liked offense. I mean, I was a very defensive-minded person attitude-wise, but I liked offense because I felt like offense was a chess match. You know, you get to, you get to dictate what the defense does. You can control what the defense does. So just watching that, I still didn't think about coaching until I got out of school and I used to go watch the Pop Warner, Pop Warner, local Pop Warner teams play. And I would watch the high schools play. And I was the only person around at the time who had, they know that I played college football and had graduated college. And uh, I was asked if I would uh, coach uh, the uh, little league team. And 
I said, I'll think about it, you know, give me a week. And if, you know, try to find somebody else, if you couldn't, if you can't do it, then I'll do it, you know? And at that time, uh, that's when the Snoop league was just now getting started. And, uh, actually Snoop's wife was the one that was the president of it, but all, uh, you know, he was gathering all uh, the local neighborhood guys that wanted to coach football and everybody kind of looked at me as the guy that knew more football than everybody else because I was, you know, in college. So I was a part of that inception of that whole thing. And, you know, that's kind of where it got started. So, you know, once I started coaching those little kids, I just – I fell in love with them, you know. And being out of football for a year or two at that time, you know, you have this itch because, you know, I kind of cater it to – you live your life, uh, athletes live their lives one season at a time. You know, in the off season, you don't think about nothing until the next season. So at that time, you know, you get that itch around football season, and if you're not playing, you don't know how to scratch it. So I started to, uh, you know, as I was working with the kids, you know, I vicariously was able to scratch that itch by, you know, the emotional ups and downs that I'm watching them go through. So I just got addicted from there. And it was just a yearly thing. I had to do it. I wanted to do it. And, you know, just game planning and wanting to compete and want, and teaching and actually teaching these young kids how to play and actually seeing them perform the things that you tell them to do. And it just, it hasn't changed for me, you know, from there. So, you know, from there, uh, that's when they asked me to coach the high school because I coached for three years in Pop Warner and we won three championships in a row. So, you know, the high school wasn't doing well. So I was the local guy once again. So they were like, well, come and work and be a teacher. So that's when I went to, uh, you know, get a teacher credential and everything. And I started teaching uh, at Crenshaw High School. And that's when I started to, uh, you know, they asked me to be the coach you know, at that time, and that's when my high school coach, who's still there uh, today, you know, asked if I would uh, be his offensive coordinator. So I was doing the, the Little League as well and started being the offensive coordinator for the high school. That's when, you know, I was saying I really got addicted, you know, to coaching at that time. So it, it just, it, it, it just, like I said, it, it was that itch that needed to be scratched. And from, from every year from there, I mean, even now, like I'm – I'm really frantic now because, you know, it's that time of year where you, where you itching, you know, and you, and you want to do it. So, um, but that's pretty much the gist of uh, my coaching uh, deal. Uh, leaving Crenshaw, going over to um, UCLA and how I got to UCLA, they came over to Crenshaw for a clinic. So Eric B and me, they all came over to the high school to give us a clinic and uh, I put together, you know, with all the little league coaches just so they could meet the guys and learn a little football. And I had about um, maybe about 10 kids that were uh, probably Division One prospects. And, um, like, uh, four of those kids ended up uh, signing with uh, UCLA. And I just kind of threw myself in that, in that deal and asked if they had a little job up there for me. And they threw me in the mail room. And I used to collect all of the videotapes. And back then, there were still VHS and DVDs. So I was collecting all the videotapes, and I would watch them. 
So, you know, they would just pile up and I just created a job for myself and I would sit there and watch them and all the kids that I thought were uh, good players, I would just hand them off to the coaches and we would just talk football as I would uh, hand those players off. And uh, just in the, uh, just around at the right time, opportunity, uh, DJ McCarthy was the receiver coach at the time and he had just got the job at uh, LSU. So, you know, I asked uh, Coach Durrell, you know, I mean, I told him I had a lot of connections to a lot of kids, and I do know a little bit about football. So, um, you know, I would be a cheap date if he, uh, <laughs> if, he, if he would hire if he would hire me, you know. So he thought about it, and he, he did it. You know, and that's when uh, I got with uh, Coach Jay, you know, at the same time. So, yeah, that's pretty much my coaching idea. One of the coach – Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, that's, that's just a, a, a story. It's, it's kind of, no offense, like hard to believe. That's a, amazing how you went from not even wanting to play football and forced into it and into touching and improving so many people's lives. We went to college at the same time, Coach. I, went, I was, played from Nevada from 93 to 97. Mm-hmm. And I, I, was, I wasn't into that coaching thing either. I was like, oh, I'm done. I got my – well, almost my degree. And then I went off and did a few things and then came back. And I, I got this one guy just called me out of the blue. as was a friend of a friend. Say, hey, I got a job for you. You want to come coach and you know, de- do teaching? I was like, eh, okay. And then once I got in that coaching biz and, and the kids just wide-eyed and, and how they just soak up all the energy and all your information and – and just your character and whatnot, and and it was it was just such a blessing for me, man. Because, I mean, I, I you know, growing up, you you know, I watched college. I knew I learned about college, like actually going to school from watching television shows. You know, like yeah. nobody in my family had gone to college, so you know, like I said, we were just about surviving for the to, until the next day, and so the little thing I knew, and I mean, it was just crazy to me. I never, I didn't realize how good a football player I was in high school until, you know, coaches just started calling the house. You know, I can remember dealing with my own recruiting and just um, arguing with the coach from Yale because. He wanted to. He wanted me to come to Yale, and it was. I said, "Well, you're telling me you're not giving me a football scholarship." And he says, "Well, we can't call it a football scholarship." And I go, "No, that's not true. Everybody calls it a football scholarship." <laughs> and he says, "You know, it's, it's you know, so I mean, we're going back and forth, and you know, I'm 17 years old trying to negotiate this, and I absolutely know nothing I'm talking about. You know, it's like." <laughs> Ivy League schools cannot call it a football scholarship. It's just like, he says, well, we pay for the same things. And I'm like, no, nah, man, my mother has no money. And if I'm going to go to school, like, you got to pay for everything. And he's like, I promise you I will. And I said, nah, I can't go on your promise, man. Like, that's not going to work. You know, wow. so I, just these just these telephone calls, man, and just me, 17, and, you know, asking my mother's advice. And she just shrug her shoulders like, I don't know. Like, you know, so it's just I'm trying to figure it out. So it's just a blessing, man, to go 360 and the very things that I fought against as a child, you know, being able to help kids and guide kids just out of those, out of that light, you know. Well, and that was my question was the fact that you've been a, a coach from, I mean, 
not wanting to even be play play football to be a coach of a, a D one school. And if you ever sit back and you know go, wow, I've I I got because I'm a teacher as well. So you ever mm-hmm. sit back and go, hey, I, these guys, I have implemented the seed that you know, and and with my upbringing and with what I have done and have accomplished. If as a teacher, I go, if I can get one kid to do one thing in one month, I've done a pretty good job. Uh, you ever sit back and go, hey, I, I, you know, these kids, I, I put them in my shoes a little bit and, you know, I got them out to a, a, a hole they were they were into. Uh, you ever think back and, and say, I, I'm proud of myself for that? You know what? Now, now I do. You know, since I've been here in Nevada, you know, it's just – it's quiet. It's cool. So, you know, you, you get a chance to sit back and actually, like I said, I, I've never celebrated myself for anything that I've done. You know, it's just always just do it and get it done. And, you know, I think it hits me the most when I go back or we go out and we're recruiting and, you know, we'll put people up on the board and then I'll tell Coach Jay, I know that kid's grandfather. I know that kid's father. I know that kid, you know, I used to coach that kid's father. I used to coach this kid, right? You know, it's like, it's like that. Like it's, and that's, yeah. that's the surreal part of it to be able to see the the fruits, you know, of all of this. And then, you know, you run into, I run into some of these guys as adults and they talk about just the influence that I had on them and, all of the stuff that I taught them, and it's just like, wow, like, you know, I was really just telling you what somebody had told me, and, you know, and it, and it, and it, and it sticks, and, you know, you, you don't realize how much control you have in those kids, so, you, you know, you, you have to be careful with the things that you say, because they take it to heart, and they'll, you know, uh, base their lives on a lot of your philosophies, that you don't know, you know, you might just be uh, jiving them or just messing with them a little bit. And, you know, but they'll really base their lives on those things and, and, and ride it all the way out, you know. So it's just, it's a very, very uh, thin line, you know, between. But, I mean, I just, man, I, I'm still in awe sometimes when I, you know, sometimes just even embarrassed, you know, if a kid says to me that I influenced him in some kind of way or, you know, it's 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 surreal, man. Hey, John, Mike, I just wanted to – I'm sorry for jumping in. I, You know, we, we, we had a team meeting uh, a couple weeks ago uh, when our kids were, were talking about all the, the, the unrest that was going on with uh, George Floyd's murder, and, and we really needed to talk about, you know, our own personal experiences and – you know, Eric and I have known each other a long time, but one of the things is that we have we have kids from small towns, we have guys from big cities, and there's a lot of differences between our players and their experiences growing up. And, you know, between our black players and our white players and our our Samoan players. Um, but one of the things, you know, there's been a lot of conversation. There's a lot of differences in between black people and their, the way they grow up. I mean, I grew up in a Midwestern town, college town, suburban, and I had a lot of experience, but I never really experienced a lot of violence in my family or anything. Um, and when I met Eric, 
you know, we would just be in the office all day together. We just talk and tell stories. And, and one of the things I was wondering, Coach Scott, if you could just share with these guys, you know, he, he would tell stories about the 92 riots in L.A. and how it, it affected his neighborhood. And will you just share a little of that, Eric? Uh, yeah, no problem. Um, well, I mean, and it's funny because – you know, what's happening today, you know, within the last uh, few weeks, you know, I can see it through way different eyes now. I mean, when I was, uh, I was in high school at the time the 92 riots happened. And, you know, we, like, you know, watching uh, Rodney King, you know, being, uh beat on television and, and I was just sharing that growing up, you know, I've always heard, you know, from my mom, my grandfather, you know, and so on, just, you know, uh, stay out the way, staying clear, you know, uh, hey, don't start mouthing off to the police, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And it was like, but growing up, you find out, well, man, I said, yes, sir. I said, no, sir. And he slammed me on the car anyway. You know, he drove me to, he knows that, you know, at that time in LA, they had something called crash units and crash units were gang units. So they would drive around the neighborhoods. And I mean, if you were standing two or three people, they would just come and grab you, harass you. And then they would put your name in a gang Rolodex. So, at the end of the day, sometimes they would just get pissed off. They'll drive you to a rival neighborhood and drop you off, you know, and be like, thanks for the information. And, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, like, I got to try to make it back home. And it became a running joke, you know, for us growing up. But, you know, when we got a chance to see that, I mean, the anger, I think that we felt, and I was talking to the team about it, you know, because a lot of the kids, you know, when you watch these things on television, and I mean, you have like these video recordings everywhere now. It's like the the anger that you feel because at the end of the day, it's like watching a movie and you're constantly talking about this movie and you're wondering what day you're going to be the star of this movie. So in 92, you know, being in high school and, you know, like I said, I have five brothers and my mother was a single parent. Like she, she, you know, her, her deal was kind of like, I'm going to pray for you. And if you, you, you know, hopefully you make it home. You know, I just, you know, I have no money for you. I have nothing, but you got to go to school. You got to do something. Cause when you turn 18, you're going to have to get out of here. You got to figure it out. You know, you got to fly. You know, you can't stay up under me all your life. So, you know, every morning we get outside, it's a prayer. You know, we get prayed over and, you know, we get told, go deal with the world. So, I mean, the anger that you feel when you see these this civil unrest, because then it was more like, it felt more like white versus black. You know, that's that was the feel then, because you had these, six police officers, six white police officers beating this one black man. And then, you know, it's kind of like my family comes from Mississippi. 
So it's all the things that they've ever talked about, all the things that they ever, and you know, like I said, it's, 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 it's four of us at this time and four boys and my brothers are pissed off and everybody's pissed off and this anger at that age. And I was trying to explain, it's very displaced anger. It's like looking at a child, you know, when you, and so you guys have children. So, you know, a baby, a, a toddler, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, when you, when you when they're frustrated and they get angry they don't know how to process that anger so the first thing they'll do is probably hit you know or throw something or or get mad or you know you go to your room when your parents piss you off and you go and knock something down or you know kick the bed or you know knock something off the wall so when you start to see that type of anger so you take that type of anger and you multiply it times 10 times 100 you know, so the the local store, you know, uh, it's ran by the Korean family. Well, every time I go in that store, you follow me around, you treat me like I'm a criminal. So forget you, you know, and the market, you know, same, same thing, you know. So you start to have this displaced anger. You don't know where to place it. So, you know, you get angry and all it takes is one person to get it started. One person to throw a trash can, one person to break a window, one person to just do some silly act and then it just lights the flame. And that's what I witnessed in 92. It, it was, it was in my neighborhood. It was one person in particular and he lit it and everybody just went berserk. And like I said, the feel of it was definitely white versus black. And I wanted to kind of share that because growing up, you know, in an environment where I knew nothing but gangs, that's all that was around me. You know, what set you from? Where you claim? What do you do? You know, it's like I'm saying, you never think beyond your life you never think beyond five, 10 years. You don't think I would have a lot of choices I would have made differently had I known I would be going to college, had I known I would be a I would want to be a football coach, a college football coach and all these things. You just don't know. You don't think about the future. Your future is not planned out. You know, you just kind of go through life. You know, like I said, surviving. You, you're taught how to survive and that's it. You know, how to figure it out, you know, how to take, uh, 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 you know, at that time, Top Ramen was like 10 cents a pack. You get 10 for a dollar, cut up a couple of hot dogs in it. And, you know, when we were growing up, my mother said, you got a choice, you know, do you want a pair of Nikes or do you want to eat today? You know what? I won't eat for two days <laughs> a pair of Nikes, you know, because it's just, I'm not going to get talked about in school. So I would rather not eat than I have find somebody that'll feed me. So just please get me the Nikes. You know, so um, the displaced anger and, and, and what you saw in 92, definitely way different than um, uh, what's happening now, what's been happening today. And, and the reason I say that because, and I, and I was telling the football team that I had a chance to go out, you know, during the protest, like there weren't protests in 92. It was just anger. It was just violence. It was just anger. There was no protest. The protest didn't come till after, 
you know, the, the riot, but there was just, there was zero protest. There was nothing to talk about because remember it was based on the fact that all those guys were found innocent after the court that, you know, they, they were arrested, but they were, they all got off. And it, that was the result, you know, this particular incident, you know, the age group, you still feel the displaced anger because I can still feel it. You know, the, the watching that eight minutes and 46 seconds, you know, really took me back to that anger and I could feel it. You know, the, the adults around me, we could still feel it, you know, but the thing that made it different was for the first time, you know, white people said it was wrong. You know, and I think the, the, the one of the worst things is this pandemic, but one of the best things for this time was that everybody was at home and stationary and quarantined and had a chance to watch the eight minutes and 46 seconds and be able to actually feel that pain. You know, so it's a, it's a very, I mean, to me, when I, when I even get teary eyed about it, you know, it's, it's, more of just, you know, seeing that people have recognized the fact that, you know, some things are just wrong. Right is right and wrong is just wrong, you know. And being out there even these past couple of weeks, you know, I was out at a couple of protests in L.A. and, you know, they started shooting uh, rubber bullets at us, you know, at the crowds. And to even see... You know, I had a couple of white friends that are out there with me, some college uh, guys that I school guys that I went to school with, guys that I played with. They were all out there. And, you know, these, you know, they started standing in front of us, you know, just just like right there, just like, man, you you willing to take this this giant rubber bullet, you know, for us? Like, I mean. It was such a, it was so different for me. The feel of this is just so different because now people are actually open to discussion. They actually want to talk about it. They actually want to see it. They actually want to understand it. And, you know, for a long time, it's just really hard. You hold things back because you don't have a lot of people that's even willing to just talk about it. You know, everybody has their own thoughts about it and they just run with it. It's like, talking about a movie or a book, but you've never watched the movie and you've never uh, read the book. You know, I think it's unfair. It's an unfair conversation, you know, to assume anything and just, you know, so I was just, I'm always about just take the time, talk to me. You don't have to, I don't want you to actually feel my pain. I want you to be able to empathize with me, but I want you to understand where it comes from. I want you to understand where it, where that, thing derives from, where it grew from, you know, and like I said, for me, and even with a lot of the black kids now, you know, you just don't understand that we're taught our entire lives that be careful because you can get in trouble, you say the wrong thing to a white person, you do the wrong thing to a white person, especially somebody in authority, a cop or something that, you know, just shut up. Just hold your tongue. Don't say nothing because you could get killed. And like I said, I come from a I come from a family being, you know, I'm older than these kids now, but I come my family, you know, like I said, grew up in Mississippi. You know, my grandfather was a sharecropper. My mother picked cotton, you know, so she was born in 46. So, you know, it, it was so the stories that I heard and to see my uncle cry 
watching uh, Floyd die to see my mom who just had a stroke, you know, and I told Jay about that weeks ago, but you know, I was, I went by his place and he watched it. And I mean, he's there in a, in a hospital bed and to watch him cry, you know, because of what's happening was just a really, really, um, you know, just really eye opener for me once again. And like I said, it just takes you back to that place. So, I mean, I can go on and on about this stuff. You know, I, I man. You know, I really appreciated Eric sharing that team. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of amazing conversations that have come up from all this stuff. And, and uh, you know, it's just a blessing to have uh, to have Eric on our staff and, and all he's done for young people his whole career. And, uh, you know, we just keep working through it. But, you know, it's day by day, it's all this uh, trying to work all through these things. But it's it's important for people to hear that story. And, and it was great for our team to hear that story um, because, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of us have never experienced a lot of that. So, um, and, and I really do want you guys to know that, I mean, for me – to talk about these things, it's not a difficult thing. You know, um, having been educated, you know, growing up the way I grow up and then actually, you know, being able to uh, be in diverse settings, you know, going to Northwestern. I went to Northwestern University. I went to UCLA. I went to USC, you know, so and along the way, I mean, I have met so many just wonderful people. You know, I don't, I, I really, I mean, I really couldn't even understand to this day now, especially knowing all the people that I know, how anybody even sees an issue with race. You know, I can see an issue with just problems and, and crime and stuff like that, but just a, a racial issue, I, I can't, I can't see it. So for me, it's not hard to talk about any of these things. I, I actually like to talk about them because it gives me an opportunity to, number one, share, but also to be able to teach. I mean, I am a teacher at heart, you know, and so to be able to teach and answer any questions that might surround these things, you know, with the emotional ups and downs that comes with this type of stuff. With the, And, I mean, I have coached. And, and, and the funny thing, I've coached all races of kids. I mean, not just black kids. I mean, I've I've coached all races. I mean, even in the little league and Pop Warner. I mean, this 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 everybody's integrated, you know. And children are so innocent and so absent-minded to those things, you know. You you just wonder what happens, you know, when people become adults and what influences them or what changes their mind because just working around a gang of kids is just. I never get that. There's never an issue with 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 color or race or nothing with kids. I mean, it's so innocent, you know. So I just, you know, man, I'm I'm always willing to to talk about it, to share anything. I mean, like I said, my foundation is is teaching. I want to teach as much as I can and try to reach as many people as I can in that area. This has been the Grit Iron Podcast for the head coach, Jay Norvell, for Eric Scott, for the Hall of Famer, Mike Edwards. I'm John Ramey. Thanks for being with us. So long, everyone.